Hey, everyone. When I say the band Nirvana, who do you think of? Okay, this book isn't by him, but see the guy behind him? No, no, the one on the drums? Yeah, yeah, him. Okay, today's book is The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I thought that I had some crazy stories, but then I read this book about a guy who drummed for Nirvana, regularly jams with Paul McCartney, and has performed for multiple presidents, and I threw my autobiography in the fireplace. And I'm David Vance. I agree strongly with Nirvana's philosophy of teaching babies to swim after dollars. The Storyteller is the memoir of Dave Grohl, who was part of a band so successful that if you Google it, 18 of the first 20 results are about the band instead of the religious concept sacred to 1.7 billion people. And this is the book pile. First, I was, I was thinking, how is a Foo Fighter sacred? <laughs> All right, quick reminder to please rate and review the book pile so that just like Nirvana, we too can go mainstream and sell out. <laughs> All right, it's Macy.R says, I love this podcast. It's my go-to pick-me-up for when I want to be in a better mood. I frequently find myself laughing out loud or nodding in agreement with these two. I would have put parentheses, especially Kellen. The combination of their sense of humor and intellectual commentary make for an excellent listen. All of the episodes are fantastic, but the roasts are my personal favorite. And Dave loves to hear that. <laughs> I think of our roasts as our junk food episodes. <laughs> Where it's like, you probably won't get much that really impacts your life unless you're Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> well, I think of it as teaching people how to more specifically hate those books. <laughs> Finally, our next two books are Skeleton Crew and The Silk Roads. Uh, not the materials I would choose for either a crew or a road. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and without further ado, here are five lessons that we took from The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. All right, lesson one, get the reps. So, Kellen, we were talking about how Dave Grohl is so modest that every time he tells a story, he's like, you know, I was lucky to be there, right place, right time. And as a reader, you're like, yeah, you were 17 and knew the drums to every song of every band. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Like Nirvana was already successful and they picked you to replace their drummer and then they became huge. Mm -hmm. And by the way, how funny would it be if that drummer was also Pete Best? <laughs> So Dave tells the story of going to the dentist as a teenager, and the dentist says, your teeth have unusual deterioration. Do you chew ice? And as a reader, I was like, oh, note to self, stop chewing ice. <laughs> but Dave, Dave says, oh, I know what that is. I play drums with my teeth. <laughs> and so we find out that in high school, he not only spent hours drumming at home, he would spend hours at school drumming his teeth together to learn different drum parts. And so he's getting that much extra practice. And I watched a clip of him doing it. He goes really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love if every once in a while in the middle of history class, he like unintentionally does like a cymbal <laughs> <a> crash. <laughs> it's fascinating to me that he basically made the practice easier to do. And so it helped him practice way more. Sean White talks about that with snowboarding because he says, he snowboarded in California where it's sunny on the mountains so you can snowboard every single day. 
And he had this just amazing snowboard course with a tow rope so he could do a quick run, take the tow rope straight up without unstrapping and just do that over and over. And so I'm, I'm so interested that one way to get the reps is to make the reps as easy as possible to get. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I didn't play drums on my teeth as a kid, but we did have this group in high school called the Beatmaster Five. <laughs> and then another friend wanted to be in it, but wasn't. So we called him the Beat Weasel. <laughs> All right. Lesson two, do more of what you love and you'll get to do even more of it. So when Dave Grohl was 17, he was faced with a dilemma, which by the way, I haven't verified this because it's one of those things that I I don't want to research because I want it to be true. <laughs> and that is that I heard that a dilemma is when you have to choose between two things and a conundrum is when you have to choose between three. Oh. Now I have the dilemma of whether to look that up or not. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I want it to be true because it makes me feel smarter. <laughs> so he had this dilemma. Does he join an established band with a loyal following and who, by the way, thought that he was 21? <laughs> or does he finish high school? And he says, quote, my heart was completely devoted to music. High school was going nowhere for me. And my future was looking more and more like manual labor in suburban monotony, which I mean, by the way, is fine if, if that is what you want. I actually prefer the suburban monotony part of the statement as far as living conditions. <laughs> I've thought about that, how in some ways you want your family life to be the good kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It really is that Anna Karenina principle of like, all happy families are the same. Mm -hmm. But the the tragedy for me uh, is the kids who have been conditioned to think that if they're not doing well in school, especially the ones that are really trying, that they won't have a good career, right? Like as if you could Mm -hmm. project your entire life based off of your GPA when you have your driver's permit you know it's it's yeah at the same time like this isn't i'm not trying to inspire some loser who's skipping class like i don't want i don't want, i also don't want kids to think like see mom and dad school doesn't matter i'll still be a millionaire because the point <laughs> i will say if dropping out of high school was his path to superstardom that bodes really well for both of us <laughs> <laughs> And that's not just a joke that Dave and I did not. Oh, yeah. We do not have high school diplomas. We did not complete high school. <laughs> that's why we have to read so much. So, <laughs> we should get into the details at some point because we actually did also go to college and then stop there as well. But <laughs> but we did just drop out in like the cool 1980s movie sort of way. Oh, I, I, got a, I did get a college diploma. So you dropped out of med school. I'm trying to make I that. I dropped out of med school. I'm trying to make that. <laughs> seem exactly like me dropping out when I was a junior in college. Um, but the point to me and like the, the comparison here is that Dave Grohl was playing hooky, but it was so that he could practice for hours a day on music. <laughs> like he was still developing skills. So if that's your thing. <laughs> yeah. If you dropped out of school because high school is getting in the way of your 10,000 hours. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, again, not trying to motivate the kids whose like 10K hour goal has mostly to do with vaping. <laughs> it's the ones who are like entrepreneurial or- So in, selling vapes. 
So I had a band when I was a teenager. We were the Stickmans. <laughs> and it was because I designed the album covers and all I can draw is Stickmen. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a band as a kid, and we named our first album Pangea because we knew we were going to break up. (laughs) (laughs) That is like the most intelligent pessimism. (laughs) Like, look, guys, I know it's fun now, but who knows what will happen in 25 million years. (laughs) But I think Dave Grohl's story is so sweet, though, because he went to his mom with the decision. Uh, weighing the pros and cons. And his mom, who was a teacher at his high school, mm-hmm. she just said, well, you'd better be good. And I think that's just such an amazing, supportive... It also mm-hmm. has like a sort of a lighting of fire. There's like an accountability there. And now, you know, Dave Grohl, a dozen Grammys later. Right. <laughs> I also want to make clear for any parents or kids out there, he was really good at the drums at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like you weren't kidding before when you said that. When he was 17, the name of the band that he was joining was Scream. And the reason why he got accepted to their band is because they needed a drummer. And when he went to the frontman of the band's house, the guy asked Dave Grohl, what songs of ours do you know? And he said, all of them. And then he did. They did an audition and he nailed <laughs> yeah. every song. So... <laughs> If you haven't started lessons yet, maybe don't drop out just now. (laughs) All right, lesson three. Popularity is a mixed bag. So Nirvana had this problem, which is when your entire identity is based on being an outcast, what happens when that identity wins you mainstream popularity? (laughs) (laughs) What happens when you become an in-cast? Uh-huh. Like, are you are you still a freak if all of a sudden jocks and cheerleaders just love you? <laughs> it's like how one of Taylor Swift's early hits says she's not a cheerleader type, but you know millions of cheerleaders love Taylor oh, Swift. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, have you ever done that thing where you like something before it's big, and then you're disappointed it becomes big? I, I think it's because we just love, love being special. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've caught myself a couple times subtly bragging about how my family got into Harry Potter so early and I have to I have to be like wait am I being a hipster about the biggest books ever <laughs> I told you that quote I have to remind myself of whatever you may be sure of be sure of this that you are dreadfully like other people <laughs> anyway here's here's kind of what I think that nirvana pattern is I think there are people who love being different and people who love being the same. And neither of those is an insult. But it's so funny when the different crowd finds a way to rebel and then the same crowd just copies it. So now they have to find a new way to rebel. (laughs) (laughs) Like how, how today a teenager can come up with a new slang word and a month later Wendy's is using it. (laughs) (laughs) It's... Oh, and it's interesting too to bring Nirvana into this because Nirvana, they're like the godfathers of the grunge scene. This is coming off of, you know, the 80s, of 80s, like stadium hairspray rock stars with Mm -hmm. their like tight leather and like designer clothing to just like 
These are just regular dudes wearing flannel shirts and Levi's rocking out. Mm. Um, but then the contrast disappears when every other band in Seattle started doing the exact same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you look at like <laughs> the end of the 90s into the 2000s, the pendulum swings way the other direction. And they go back to like super tight jeans and tight shirts. It's almost like anarchy is always temporary. <laughs> or like any form of rebellion is eventually co-opted by the establishment (laughs) 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 so Derek Thompson talks about this trend with baby names because he says you know trendy parents find unique names and then basic parents beat those names to death so trendy parents have to keep finding new ones (laughs) anyway there's a great quote by Derek Thompson about this idea he said Some people like Taylor Swift because she's popular. Some people like Taylor Swift and don't really pay attention to her popularity. And some people look for things to dislike about Taylor Swift because her popularity sends a warning that she might be fake, dreck, or both. Wow. (laughs) I think that's one of the things that's like disheartening about something that you love and discovered becoming very popular is because it's almost like you're able to create this illusion for yourself that... I achieved this, <laughs> like I discovered this thing, and then you slowly find out that maybe the reason why you like it is because it's broadly appealing. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about us wanting to take pride in our taste is that if you're the only one who likes something, how do you know if it's good? Mm. But if everyone likes it, how do you know you're special? (laughs) (laughs) And so the takeaway should probably be that we should just like what we like and enjoy it for its own sake, rather than trying to enjoy things for the status liking them confers on us. (laughs) 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 All right. Lesson four. Rock on your own terms. Why does that sentence sound older the further down it you go? (laughs) (laughs) It's what Dwayne Johnson repeats to himself in the shower every morning. (laughs) So people talk about how amazing it is that Billie Eilish won a Grammy for an album that she recorded in her house. But Dave Grohl did that back in 2000. Wow. With nothing left to lose. And in the book, he talks about accepting the award, like looking out over the polished Hollywood musician elite, you know, teams of producers and knowing that he had just made the album with his friends in his basement recording studio. And I just love that he he wanted to make his music the way that he wanted to make it. Um, There's another story uh, after Kurt Cobain's death when he he wallowed for a while. And then as he started getting back into things, he was invited to play some shows with Tom Petty. And he said he enjoyed his time with them. But then Tom Petty asked him to join them full time. Dave Grohl turned him down. (laughs) That's just (laughs) so amazing to me. So he said that Tom Petty told him that he would have his own tour bus, a comfortable schedule, everything he wanted. But Dave Grohl, he writes, it all sounded great, but the songs just weren't mine. Hmm. And I love that that mattered to him. Yeah. One of the catalysts for me getting into stand-up comedy was that when I was a Boy Scout and we would go on our monthly campouts... I would write down jokes that I read in joke books that we had at home. But I realized after like three or four times that no one was laughing at me. 
Hmm. They were laughing at whoever wrote these jokes. And so from that point on, I just started writing my own. But did you try collecting several hundred pages? (laughs) (laughs) What you're telling me is you gave up. (laughs) The first joke that I ever got paid to write, it was in Boy's Life magazine. It was published when I was 15. Really? Um, I just thought that the jokes in there were so dumb that I could do at least just as good. Um, So the joke was... Where does Santa Claus go swimming? The North Pool. (laughs) And (laughs) I got published and they sent me a $2 bill. Wow. That's uh, that's Jefferson, right? Is it? I think so. What a bummer to be on the $2 bill. What a bummer to be on that bill of currency where half the time people look at it and they're like, is that even real? (laughs) (laughs) it's probably easy to counterfeit because people are used to having a weird reaction to it (laughs) (laughs) so then uh, another moment that stuck out to me along this theme in the book was he talks about hanging out with trent reznor as um, reznor was recording his second nine inch nails album inside the house where the manson family murdered sharon tate And he says at one point he had to walk out of the house and get in the pool. He says, quote, it was an energy that I could not connect or jive with at all. I was all too familiar with the feeling of darkness, fragility, and pain. The darker side of music was something I was always attracted to sonically, but I began to realize that that wasn't who I was as a person. Music had always represented light and life to me. Mm-hmm. I just think that's so neat. And I do think that pain can be expressed in music. I think a lot of the best soul comes from a place of organic pain. But I also think not everyone is wired that way, especially with heavy metal bands. It often seems like the darkness is more of a deliberate marketing move than it is like coming from an actual source of tragedy. Hmm. But Dave Grohl is like, I've gone through some real stuff, so maybe it's okay if I look on the bright side. <laughs> <laughs> so much of what I enjoyed about his story were these these concept examples of how incredibly in love with music he is, but then also how important to him that he make his own music the way that was true to him. It's funny that he lives in a genre where it counts as doing things on his own terms to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so lesson five isn't really a lesson. It's actually a little bit of a question. So number five, how do we know what's good? (laughs) So first of all, all cards on the table. Grunge isn't really my thing. But as I read the book, I just respect him and his process so much that I can respect the art, even if it's not quite my taste. Mm -hmm. And so now it's making me wonder, are Twilight and the Da Vinci Code bad books, or are they great books in a genre that's just not my thing? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Stephanie Meyer wrote, maybe the most popular romance of the millennium so far. How sure am I that my bad opinion of it makes it bad? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to push back a little there, because I, I uh, if you are asking a legitimate question, I would put... I, I am asking a serious question. Well, I would, I would compare it more to Stephen King, because he at least is a great writer. 
And whether or not you enjoy his genre, he's like a master of the craft. Stephanie Meyer sucks. That's the big difference, <laughs> is that like even her prose is like, it's like a strong B, you know? And that's <laughs> with, with Nirvana, like Kurt Cobain, he knew what he was doing, even if it's not a genre that you enjoy, the way that he was able to um, sort of dial down his song structure to simplicity, but catchiness, I, I feel like is a, an art in itself and not just like a dumb sort of Blink-182 riff that means nothing. <laughs> I'll put it this way. I'm worried that I'm just a coward who bows to peer pressure because if something's not my thing, but it has cultural cachet, then I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> like Leonardo da Vinci, I respect him so much as a creator, but when I look at any of his paintings other than The Last Supper, I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't, like, enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. But I'm telling you, as someone with an associate's English degree, <laughs> who has read dozens of prose and grammar books over the year, she's not great. <laughs> and I guess my question, and I think it's an unprovable question, is... If Stephanie Meyer moves some people to like emotional places that no other work of art has ever moved them, can I just say, oh yeah, her writing is bad? Or is the most that I can ever say for sure that it's just not my thing? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that you could say that some people are just easily pleased. <laughs> <laughs> All right, random facts. So if you're ever wondering who the lowest status member of a band is, <laughs> consider that when a bunch of guys were waiting outside a Nirvana show to beat the crap out of the band for something the lead singer did, the band was jumping in a getaway car and they closed the door on the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and they were only in that position because Kurt Cobain hit a security guard with his guitar. <laughs> So Dave Grohl has been nominated for two Grammys with the band Queens of the Stone Age, and he's won Grammys with Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Them Crooked Vultures, and on one song that he and Paul McCartney wrote and recorded in two hours. Wow. What song is that? <laughs> it's called Cut Me Some Slack. Interesting. And it's a really fun Definitely song. Definitely going to immediately listen to that after this. <laughs> And I may try to listen to it while you're saying this. <laughs> um, if you watch their acceptance speech at the Grammys, I think I know what Dave Grohl was going for because he does not at all in the book or as a person strike me as someone who is cocky. He's just like mm -hmm. a ball of energy. He's just like a, a like the Tom Cruise of alternative rock. <laughs> and you feel that while you're, especially if you listen to the book, it's just a joy to uh, listen to him. Yeah. Um, but in the speech, I think he was going for the tone of, isn't rock and roll cool that you can just get together with your buddies and make a great song? But he gets up there and he's holding the Grammy and he just sort of says, oh, th thank you guys so much. Me and Paul, we knocked this out in just a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> talking to this sea of people who spent eight months producing their latest album. 
Another fun little fact is that the Foo Fighters has won the Grammy for Best Rock Album four times, which is more than any other band. Wow. They've been nominated wow. twice that many times. And just for my own input, my favorite albums of theirs, which are nominated but didn't win, are The Color and the Shape and In Your Honor. In Your Honor is a fantastic double album that they did where the second half of it is all acoustic. And my favorite song from that side is called Virginia Moon. And it's a duet with Nora Jones. Cool. I would not have expected that combo. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what I just love about him is that he is just so into music. He loves making music with whoever he likes. One funny thing in the book is that he has all these very sweet stories about Paul McCartney. Like Paul gave his daughter her first piano lesson and Paul gave this really sweet toast to the mother of Dave's deceased best friend. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he just casually mentions his favorite Beatle is George. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, did Paul read this book? <laughs> so he doesn't mention this in the book, but in online interviews, Dave Grohl has said that he plays the guitar like a drummer. So with sticks. <laughs> <laughs> that was another fun part in the book when he had his first and only drum lesson is when he discovered that he had been holding the sticks upside down. <laughs> <laughs> Because he said he thought the fat part would make a bigger sound. <laughs> Imagine trying to tenderize meat, but you think that like the pointy part is just a good grip. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so their, their biggest song is Everlong, and it wouldn't exist if he had only ever played the guitar. You could find this clip online where he walks you through how he wrote it and how he considers like the lower strings of the guitar, like a bass drum, the uppers of the snare, and the occasional cymbal. Um, so if you like listen to the first few bars of it, and you can hear like the percussive rhythm of the strings. What's also interesting is that, like I said, he skips over all the work he did so much that Nirvana ends and he launches the Foo Fighters. And as a reader, you're like, wait, when did you learn the guitar and how to sing? <laughs> he just treats it like it's like, and I, as anybody can, started a band where I played every instrument. So this uh, this just it reminded me of the book Range. Yeah. You know, where we talk about people who uh, who have uh, dedicated themselves to a variety of different fields and how each field informs the next one. Or how, uh, you know, Da Vinci, I've quoted him before, <laughs> when he is trying to insult Michelangelo by saying that he paints like a sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> So Dave Grohl, like, not only does he play the guitar like a drummer, but he writes like a rock star because at one point he says, quote, I was lying on the doctor's table, poked and prodded and wired like a vintage synthesizer. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know what this image means, but I love that you wrote it. I think that's why I tend to podcast like a comic. And Dave, you play the guitar like someone who doesn't practice the guitar very much. <laughs> you son of a... <laughs> no, I did want to ask you, like, can you think of something in your life that maybe you do that has been obviously influenced by uh, something else in your background? Uh, 
One example is I, I was a distance runner in high school and college, and now I play every sport like a distance runner where <laughs> even if I'm not gr- always great at the mechanics of the sport, I compensate by running a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be weird when you're like bowling. <laughs> yeah, I start 30 feet back. <laughs> but one of my favorite things now, one of my favorite things as I'm getting older and playing like older people is when I'm playing basketball against someone who is way better than me, but I can lock them down because I work for it so much harder. <laughs> they could score on me, but they don't want to put in the effort it would take, so they just pass. <laughs> so Dave Grohl's dad basically abandoned him, and Dave kind of torches him in this book, although it ends in like a very loving, forgiving place. And after reading this book, as well as Einstein and Steve Jobs... I noticed a pattern that I'm calling the law of absent fathers, which is when a father abandons a child, the public opinion of the father depends on which one of them becomes famous. Because <laughs> if, if the dad's famous, like Einstein or Jobs, we're like, people make mistakes. But if the child's famous, like Dave Grohl or Kelly Clarkson, we're like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That loser better not come crawling back. Yeah. (laughs) So the Nirvana portion of this book isn't as big as I was hoping it would be, but it really opened my eyes to Kurt Cobain's personality. I cried in the book during this part when Dave Grohl says, upon learning of, of Cobain's death, he says, quote, The man who had given me an apple when we first met in the Seattle airport, my shy introverted roommate was gone yeah and if you don't think a rock star can be introverted may i recommend the episode that we did on the book quiet he wrote some other just very poignant things about his grief he said it seemed that every step i took was a step away from a time when he was alive Mm. and then he also said just like staring at a sun will burn a spot in your retinas His image will forever be in mind when I look past my drums to the audience before me. Oh, I love that. There was also that other very sad thing that, you know, he got a call that Kurt Cobain had died. And then a few minutes later, it turned out that he hadn't. This was a different time when he had overdosed, but the hospital saved his life. And so now Dave says that anytime he gets a call about someone dying, he's always waiting for that call that comes after that says they're okay. And isn't that like such a tragic thing to always have? (laughs) So back to jokes. (laughs) At one point he says, there's nothing like hearing your five-year-old daughter sing rehab word for word while wearing Yo Gabba Gabba pajamas. (laughs) So at one point he tells this story of in 2016, they're performing in Gutenberg in front of 50,000 people. He says, quote, I was living out my wildest Freddie Mercury fantasies on a stage every night. Performing in a stadium of people becomes oddly addictive. And I'm like, (laughs) oddly? (laughs) Maybe, maybe very understandably. (laughs) Having every wildest dream come true is weirdly satisfying. (laughs) It's not as bad as it sounds. (laughs) So the first collaboration of the pair that started Nirvana was a Credence Clearwater Revival cover band. (laughs) (laughs) So next time you hear a Nirvana song, 
Imagine the same voice singing, have you ever seen the rain? (laughs) We are rolling on a river. (laughs) So the end of that story when they were performing at that, in that stadium in Gutenberg is that he fell 12 feet off of the stage, broke and dislocated his foot, but he would not go to the hospital because he didn't want the audience to have to wait for him to come back to complete the show. So while the EMTs went back to the hospital to get a brace for him, he had one of them stay while he sat in a chair on stage and that guy held his foot in place. Oh my gosh. And it sounds like it was a terrible break. (laughs) Another funny thing, too, is that he mentions that he's never been into hard drugs or anything, that his ritual before every show is three beers and three Advil. (laughs) (laughs) Reading the memoir of the drummer of, like, you know, the biggest grunge band, I was surprised by what, like, a goofy dad he is. Yeah. So, Kellen, I'm going to ask you a question that I have zero answer to. I looked at the current top artists on Spotify right now, mm-hmm. and of the top 20, only three are bands. The rest are solo artists. Mm-hmm. So wh- why do you think popular bands stopped being a thing? Like, why do you think the pendulum swung so much toward solo artists? It's sad to me in my own guess is that we're just so much, especially with social media, society is so much more drawn to personalities. There was a time like in the 90s when MTV was at its peak, that especially like rock bands, a lot of times you didn't even see the band in the music video. It wasn't about the band, it was about the music. Like, I'm not a Tool fan, but they have these crazy videos where it's all like this sort of macabre claymation stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. you don't know what they look like. You don't know what their names are. As you're saying that, it's occurring to me that all of these solo artists are still playing with bands. (laughs) And so maybe what happened was music execs were like, hey... The singer and the lead guitarist are really the only ones that get famous anyway, unless you're the biggest band of all time, and and we know all four of those names. But let's just cut out the middleman, just promote that front person, and then send a touring band with them who we don't have to pay as much. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's crazy, because Dave, I mean, he could have, especially since he wrote and recorded all of the instruments on the first Foo Fighters album. And here's another fun fact. He also re-recorded all of the drum tracks on their second album, which is why their their drummer quit. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) Without telling anyone, he went back in. (laughs) But he could have just called them like, the Dave Grohl Five, you know? He could have pulled like that douchebag Dave Matthews band move. So another story that I really liked was when Dave Grohl, he was sleeping in the band's van one night after a gig, but then he woke up at like three in the morning because um, their band member Pete was driving their van back to Detroit because he had accidentally left their bag full of money on top of a gas pump. It was all the money to their names, which he said was about $900. And Dave Grohl says, quote, I began to realize that at any moment, this whole thing could fall apart. 
<laughs> but it just it reminded me of that one time in my open mic days. I once drove to a gig that was five hours away, and it paid oh, no. the amount of cash that I needed because I didn't have the <laughs> gas money to get back home. Wow. I think a good rule of thumb is never set down the bag full of money. <laughs> You know, you know how when you're paying for gas, you'll take out your wallet and just sort of balance it on top of a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the storyteller. One, get the reps. Two, do more of what you love and you'll get to do even more of it. Three, popularity is a mixed bag. Four, rock on your own terms. Five, how do we know it's good? And six, school is for people who just want to be poor nerds. Mm -hmm.